Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 20 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. We're back after a holiday break, and I really appreciate you sticking with us. Before we get started, I want to plug the new show that I'm working on. It's called the Cloudscape podcast, and it will be a monthly show. How is it different from the Datascape podcast, you ask? The Cloudscape podcast will be a roundup of the most interesting changes and features in Google, Amazon, and Azure's public clouds. We will have three regular panel members, each an expert in their cloud, bringing to you the things that they care about and discussing and possibly arguing with each other about it. Why do this? Frankly, the velocity of the the change changes in the public clouds is incredible. So we will distill the updates and bring to you the things that we think are the most important. You can look for the new show in February or possibly a little bit sooner. Thanks, and back to today's show. Today, we're welcoming back to the show of Datascape podcast regular, Warner Chavez. Hey, Chris. How's it going? Good to be back. Brand new year, 2018, in the Datascape. (laughs) Folks, we won't be doing the lightning round with Warner. He's been on the podcast many times. He's actually the first guest of the Datascape, and you can check out episode one where you can hear his lightning and uh, closers. So Warner, today we're going to talk about Azure SQL Data Warehouse. Are you ready? Absolutely. Let's talk about this very exciting product. Okay. Let's start at the beginning. What, I mean, most of the people who are listening to this show understand data databases and are probably working with them in some capacity. So what is Azure SQL DW? So Azure SQL DW is a, let's call it a subset of database as a service. And now it's a data warehouse as a service, right? So it's managed service by Microsoft as a first party service. So you don't have to manage your hardware. You don't have to manage your operating system. You just get a data warehouse software and it is MPP software. So it is a distributed compute data warehouse. It's not just one machine that gets loaded up with all your data and your compute. Usually that would be like an SMP architecture for a data warehouse where you have a very beefy service. Instead, it's a data warehouse that is distributed amongst different machines. And this is where it gets really, it's really high scalability. It gets a lot of flexibility, but that also means that you kind of have to think about it and design your data warehouse in a different way than you would in just a regular one big server SMP architecture. What is the value? So you mentioned that is a is basically a PaaS offering of, of data warehousing in the cloud. What is the value proposition of data warehousing in a public cloud? So we have to think about how data warehousing projects are usually done on-prem, right? And this is not just exclusive to Azure. This is where I, I do have to say that the hype of the cloud has really paid off in that it has put data warehousing and analytics capabilities in the hands of many, I would say even small or medium businesses that would otherwise not be able to afford to do an analytics project or have an analytics architecture. And this is props to all the public cloud providers Amazon, Google, uh, Microsoft, they have all deployed at this point a data warehouse as a service offering. And uh, it it is a big game changer because these projects on-prem were usually very expensive upfront. We're talking about uh, big investments in terms of hardware. They were big investments in terms of licensing. And they also required quite a bit of expertise because to really build a well 
good uh, configured and performing data warehouse on-prem requires people that know what they're doing in terms of storage, in terms of how many cores, how much RAM you need, in terms of distributing that data warehouse properly amongst your storage layer and, and so on, right? So the barrier of entry has changed quite a bit for data warehousing because that barrier of entry was really high when we were just dealing with on-prem and with all the big vendors, you know, you have to buy your licenses upfront type of model. Whereas now we have a model where you literally don't have to deploy any hardware. You don't have to know anything about configuring said hardware. And you can really start with a small footprint and grow it as you go, right? Because that's another big issue that on-prem data warehouses have is that you, as a data pro and people that are listening to this, maybe a, a, a database a manager, somebody that has to actually approve budgets and stuff like that, a very hard thing to do is to actually forecast how much uh, hardware, and, and hardware goes hand in hand with licensing, right? When you have a certain amount of cores, for example, and you pay licensing per core, you're asked to basically make a guess, a, a forecast of how much capacity you need for, for these projects. And it's really hard to get it pinned down, right? So in, in the cloud, this whole problem goes away in terms of that you can just start with a small footprint and grow as, as you go on. Right. So big difference from doing these projects on prem because of these reasons. Right. It's a low barrier of entry. You don't need as much expertise and you don't have to be a forecasting genius. You can just start small and grow it up. And, and, and services even like Azure SQL DW or Google BigQuery, for example, make it even more attractive as to this uh, kind of like, you know, I'm putting my foots in, growing with my data warehouse thing. Because for example, Azure SQL Data Warehouse supports pausing your data warehouse, or you could even go to a model like uh, Google BigQuery where it's charged per query, right? Instead of just having a constant cost to run in your data warehouse. So really, really interesting how I, I, I see now how we're gonna see an explosion of, of just a lot of companies that before couldn't afford analytics backends and analytics projects, they're going to start doing them now because the cloud just enables them to finally fit it in their budget. Well, that's, you know, that's a really good point. Do you think that they, that small businesses, I, I'm, I'm picturing a, um, oh, I, I don't know, a dentist's office or perhaps, perhaps a doctor's office. Do, do you think that they know that they have analytics at their fingertips for not a lot of money? No, I, I don't think so. But the thing is that it's not just a matter of... So first of all, for a small office like that, you definitely don't need a data warehouse, but you can definitely benefit from analytics, right? So one thing is not necessarily tied to the other, right? So for like your example, you're saying like small doctor's office, do they need a data warehouse? No, but do they need analytics? They most likely would get a lot of value from analytics, right? And that's where uh, services such as like Power BI come into play, where you can hook up to any data source, regardless of size, and really quickly begin to play uh, with your data, right? And slice it and dice it and get some value out of it and even get some insights, automated insights even now from the services, right? And the thing is, I don't think it's not so much that they don't even know that they can get this, is that they don't have that mindset you know, they're not thinking, how can I leverage this data to make my business more efficient? And that really is where the value is or where people are going to get their value out of it. Because we also see this with our, some of our big clients. Instead, they accumulate and they hoard data, but they don't 
really translate it into a competitive advantage, right? I always make the the example of even like a small office where people cancel appointments all the time. With very simple analytics, you could just do like a, you get all the people that are going in supposedly that day and you check their cancellations history and just rank them by the ones that have canceled the most before and make sure that you verify with those people that day in the morning that they're actually going to show up this time, right? Very, very simple thing that you can do with historical data that any, I bet you any dentist or doctor's office in the world could probably benefit from something that simple. But they're, they're not thinking that way. That's the thing, right? That's the key is to think about how this data can work for me to make my business more efficient. And, and I want to be careful not to go too far down that rat, rabbit hole. Um, it's really interesting, but it'll diverge very far from SQL Data Warehouse. I, I, I know, I, like you, I'm very passionate about analytics as well. You did mention there something that I wanted to touch on, though. How does SQL DW differ from, say, a Google BigQuery? So there are three big data warehouse as a service offerings right now in the public cloud. So we have Amazon Redshift, which is like the granddaddy of, of the concept. And props to Amazon, because I mean, really, they, they really did a game changer when they came out with Redshift. Then we have Google BigQuery, and then we have Microsoft Azure SQL Data Warehouse, right? So there's there's a couple of difference, big differences between the models of all the three of them. So Redshift is a, a cluster model where you deploy a cluster and you basically own and pay for that cluster as long as it's up, right? And if you don't want to use that cluster, you got to take a snapshot, you destroy it. And then when you want to use it again, you can boot it up and restore your snapshot. Obviously, that operation might take a while or you pay a little bit of cost in performance because the snapshot is getting applied while you're reading from uh, your data warehouse and so on. Then uh, Google BigQuery went all the way in the other direction and basically said, well, what if we let you load data? But we're going to charge you when you start querying it, right? And, and I think the charge right now from Google is a $5 per terabyte uncompressed. That's the last, the last thing I saw from BigQuery. So it does sound very attractive. Again, if you have a pattern where you are loading the data, but you don't query it that often, then you know a model like BigQuery could be attractive to you. Now, Azure SQL DW fits kind of in the middle where you have a model that you don't have to just create and destroy the cluster completely all the time, like Redshift, because you're allowed to pause it. And on the other hand, you don't have to, you know, have a, a, a very unpredictable charge where you're getting charged by single queries like Google BigQuery. As long as the cluster is up, you can use it to its full capacity and it doesn't matter, right? So it fits a very nice kind of like halfway between both of those models that I think can benefit a lot of companies in terms of, of savings, right? Because ar architecturally as well, Azure SQL DW can resize really fast. So it's another way to squeeze savings out of it as well. Actually, Microsoft's, uh, one of Microsoft's teams internal has already published on GitHub uh, the scaling code for data warehouse. So auto scaling is not built into data warehouse itself, but you can code it yourself. And they've built this really cool, I think it's a PowerShell script that you can run on like Azure automation and it'll check the consumption of your data warehouse. And because it resizes so fast, you know, it goes from 
in, let's say the performance of one node to the performance of 10 nodes, it can happen really, really quickly. Then you can actually do auto scaling of your data warehouse during the day. And let's say overnight, you just put it at the lowest minimum. And then in the morning, if you know it's a lot busier or you're going to generate some reports, you crank it up. And then mid afternoon, while people are just consuming their reports in the morning, you can crank it back down. Like this is really powerful flexibility that you can get out of the service, right? Right. And so what I'm, I'm hearing, though, is that there are there are kind of Microsoft is kind of taking some functionality away from, say, HD Insight, which does most of these things. Is this just another option? Is it uh, a better HD Insight? Uh, how does it differ from from that feature? So, so that's a good point. So, so HD Insight is uh, for for the listeners that are not familiar. HD Insight is Hadoop as a service in Azure, right? So, I think that's the the big difference. There is that if you are going to be doing stuff with unstructured data, or you want to just provide, let's say, a sandbox for data scientists or developers to just go crazy at a bunch of data that you have on flat files, for example, then HD Insight is definitely the way to go. However, if you are consuming data sources that they are well-known structures with classic data types, like you know dates, numbers, strings, and so on, data warehouse will give you way better performance than you will get out of HD Insight, right? And on top of that, Data Warehouse provides a standard SQL interface, right? So you will be able to just hook up, let's say, Excel to it and be able to pull data down. You, If you are a, a person that's familiar with SQL, then you can just query with straight up SQL on a very familiar kind of like a star schema interface, right? That's how it's recommended that you still model your Data Warehouse in Azure SQL DW. So if you do have structured data, it's just classic data sources, Azure SQL DW will probably be the best way to go. If you want to provide sandbox for data scientists, if you just want to go over unstructured data instead, then HD Insight is where you could keep it, right? And, and you can even play with both. And that's, that's part of the nice thing about the cloud, right? You can uh, get the best or the strongest out of each service and, and mix them in your architectures. Right, right. Because there definitely seem to be blurring the lines with, you know, capabilities and there's there's overlap with these products. Now, what is my indicator if I'm if I'm looking at a, a deployment? How do I decide? Because it sounds really similar to SQL, SQL Server. So how do I, what are my cues to say mm, SQL DW is a better fit for this? Yeah, so that that's a great question. And, and there's a couple of things there. So First of all is data volume, right? So, so DW starts with one terabyte of storage. So if your data warehouse is not close to one terabyte at this point, then you probably don't really need DW. If you're migrating, especially if you're migrating, if you're just starting from scratch and you're saying, well, I know, I know for a fact that this is going to grow up to one terabyte really fast and is going to go way beyond and I'm starting from zero, then DW is a good option because you're just going to start right away designing and implementing with the MPP architecture in mind, right? With having it distributed amongst uh, uh, multiple nodes. So again, if you know you're going to go really fast to one terabyte and way beyond that line, then DW is what you want to do. Now, if you already have a data warehouse on SQL Server and 
it is not growing to that size or it's just barely scratching the surface of that size, that's where you want to consider the pros and the cons, let's say, of moving to Azure SQL DW. Because even though it is heavily based on SQL Server and it also speaks T-SQL, like SQL Server, it is not 100% compatible, right? So there are some constructs, some T-SQL constructs that don't work yet on DW. So potentially you might have to refactor code and whenever there's code refactoring, there's cost, right? There's cost of human beings that have to refactor that code. I haven't seen a good automated conversion tool. So for me right now, I see it as human beings will have to refactor that code and it also needs to be tested, of course. So there is there is a cost associated to migrating a current SMP style SQL server to an MPP data warehouse. And you don't really want to pay that cost of that migration unless you're really into that, you know, 10, 20, 30 terabyte range where you know you're going to either you're already there or you're going to grow to that size. And, and really the MPP architecture of data warehouse is going to make it really valuable for you to move to move in that direction, right? So if I was going to move, uh, let's say I've got my on-prem SQL Server data warehouse and I want to, you know, I've bought in and I want to move on to SQL DW, how do I, how do I move my data up there? So there's a couple of options. So uh, if you just want to, so something that we do a lot with clients is to prototype before we go production, obviously, because especially when you're moving all the way from something that you're used to on-prem to the cloud, a lot of people, you know, kind of want to see, like, is this really as good as people say it is kind of thing, right? So prototyping is very common. If you're just going to be prototyping, for example, you can use SSIS or you can use BCP, anything that provides a standard connection to SQL will just work for loading data over, right? Now, when we're talking about actual, real, massive data set loading, then you want to use a feature of Azure SQL Data Warehouse called Polybase, okay? Polybase is a loading or a uh, querying software that is uh, built into Azure SQL Data Warehouse. It's actually now, I think it's also now uh, built into SQL Server for reading data off of Hadoop. And Polybase, what it does is that it takes a file and it splits it into parallel loads. So, you know, if you have a big 10 gig file, it'll split it into a bunch of different threads, reading the file and loading it in. So for really big data loads, what you need to do is pretty much just uh, export your table or most of your table out into files, copy those into Azure, and then polybase them into Azure SQL DW. And of course, you can code this, you can make it automated, right? You don't have to do it manually. I'm just explaining the, pro the, the steps here manually. The other thing to think about, again, when migrating the into from on-prem to Azure SQL DW, is that because the MPP architecture, you're also likely going to have to refactor some of the design of your data warehouse to take into account that now it is going to be split amongst multiple machines. Okay. In terms of working with SQL DW, if I want to manage it, do I use SQL Server Management Studio or, or what is the tool if I want to interface? 
For now, yeah, that's the best tool, SQL Server Management Studio. Um, the latest releases of Management Studio, it supports now SQL Server, it supports Azure SQL Database, and it supports Azure SQL EW. So you're you're good with using that. If you just want to hook up to it and run some queries, it's, you know, it, it'll work fine. And it's probably the most recommended way to do it right now. Okay. And then how does the manage, manageability compare to the competitors, which you've identified as Redshift and Google BigQuery? So that's that's another interesting point. So we talked already about how it differs in the terms of the model of how you deploy the cluster and you can pause it. And it's kind of like halfway between uh, Redshifts and, and BigQuery's. So in the manageability, it's interesting because it's also halfway between the experience with Redshift and the experience with BigQuery. And what I mean by that is this. When you deploy a Redshift data warehouse, you are given a lot of control about how that cluster is set up. You can pick cores, you can pick RAM, you can pick different types of storage in your Redshift nodes. When you load data, you can even play around with the different compression algorithms. You have a lot of a lot of control in terms of you, you know really playing around with the actual cluster itself. Then you get into these arguments or or not arguments, but debates of people online where they're like, "Well, for my Redshift data warehouse, is it better if I have more mid-sized nodes, or is it better if I have fewer really beefy nodes and things like this?" Right. So that's that's like the Redshift end of the spectrum. Then. If we go to the completely other end of the spectrum, we have a solution like BigQuery, where you literally, it's its what I would call like plug and play, right? It's you load the data and you query it, and you're given very, very little in terms of configurations for it, right? So you don't have to worry about hardware config at all. But not only that, you don't even have to worry about any sort of distribution keys. You don't have to worry about any sort of sorting keys. You don't have control over adding indexes, none of that, right? So BigQuery goes in the complete opposite direction where it's literally stop worrying about management or design at all. Just you can add partitioning. That's pretty much like the only thing you can add and load and go. And and, the, and this model, I mean, there's people that are attracted by both models, right? There's people that want super control. There's people that want none of it. And they just want to have, you know, I want to load, I want to query and that's it. I want a very, very simple experience. So again, Azure SQL EW kind of falls halfway here because you don't really have uh, the full control of the hardware. Like you don't have to go crazy with picking the cores and the RAM of your nodes. You don't have control over the uh, compression algorithms, for example. It's always going to use columnar compression and that's it, let's say. But it also gives you some control over how your data gets distributed because it has the concept of distribution keys, for example. So if you know that a particular set of data is very correlated in a particular field, let's say customer ID, for example, then you can distribute your data based on that on that field so that locally the nodes will always contain all the data for that particular field value, right? So in the case of customer ID, if let's say, you know, you, Chris, have your customer ID, I have my own customer ID, when somebody queries for your data, it will always be in the same node, right? If we were to use 
this as the distribution key. So it gives you some control to try to get the best performance because you know you probably know your data best. It also gives you capabilities to, for example, say if a table should be done that way, distributed through a key, or if a table instead should be distributed round-robin style. Let's say if a table is very skewed, for example, is very skewed to a particular value, and then you don't want to have it all sitting in one node because that would kill the parallelism of the data warehouse, right? So in that case, it might be better to distribute a round-robin across all the nodes, it gives you control, for example, of uh, small dimensions where you can just replicate them all. So like a date dimension, you don't really want need to really distribute it, and you can just have it sitting locally, the entire table on each node. So that's, that's uh, kind of like halfway between lots of control from Redshift, almost everything taken out of your hands by BigQuery. It kind of sits there in the middle where it gives you some good options to play around, but it doesn't like bother with use, like thinking about compression algorithms or thinking about configuration of nodes and so on. Two things come to mind. In the case when we were discussing this, I was sitting, I was actually kind of wondering, you know, is there much for a DBA to do? And it sounds like there is, but it sounds like, you know, it, you need to, the DBA now kind of needs to know the data a little bit more to, to work with the tool. What do you think of that? So you make a good point, and and then we go into our our classic, <laughs> our classic uh, thought that I guess the debate dilemma process that we've been talking about for the last few months, and is what are the tasks of a DBA now, right? And we go back to that same thing. And you're absolutely right. There's very little that the DBA has to do in the way that a classical admin, let's call it an admin DBA would do, right? But if you are, and this is what everybody should be anyway by now, or, or if you're not, then hint, hint, this is what you should be right now, is if you are the what we call the dev DBA, right? The DBA that usually works very close with the dev team and knows, helps them tune their queries, helps them build a schema, helps them validate the design or even designs the schema himself or herself, this is the DBA that still has a lot to do on DW because, yeah, that's where you have to pick, you know, how is each table going to be? Is it going to be hash distributed? Is it going to be replicated? Is it going to be round robin? Once we actually do put that in place, how is it performing? Should we tune it? Is, did we pick a wrong distribution key? Do we end up with a very a skewed distribution instead of very uniform? Are we getting all the value out of the parallelism of the data warehouse? Are we getting stuck on a concurrency bottleneck and so on, right? So for the other stuff, yeah, I mean, you don't have to patch. You don't have to take backups, right? Uh, you don't have to worry about high availability. So the classic DBA has, has no place here. It's the dev data DBA that still has a lot of value for this. Right. It, in, in fact, I, w- I would say that they have more value than than ever. Like I, I, w- I call them the production DBA. And I, I do think that career is doomed or very limited. Like the need will is shrinking like crazy and will continue to shrink. There'll probably always be some of those jobs around, but you know, they'll be very small compared to. But when I look in, at DBA job postings, I still see a lot of very classic sounding DBA job postings. And I, I think that's wrong. I think that they are, I think a lot of companies are saying, oh, well, our developers can can do it in terms of data tuning and stuff. But most of the developers I know aren't interested in that at all. They hate it. In fact, <laughs> yeah. uh, they're developers for a reason, right? They want to move on to the next shiny thing and build the next new cool thing or up fix the broken thing. So I think if I think companies need to be investing more in DBAs who are 
are dev more dev capable and who are willing and interested enough in the business to understand the data to then you know shard properly or partition properly or or tune tune the distribution properly absolutely and and i think like you said you can say all oh, the developers can do all that stuff anyway but and and this is based on um, i mean our, our own experience at pythian shows this not just with ourselves but with many of our clients is that there's a lot more better outcomes when we see teams that have really specialized roles as opposed to the teams that have tried to have everybody be everything right and and i think you know for example in this in this sense yeah for sure you could have a, a developer start working on this but then is he going to be at the top of his game at developing or is he going to be at top of his game at understanding Azure SQL Data Warehouse? You're going to end up with a person that's not at the top of his game of either one, right? Uh, doing the other approach to me, I see better outcomes all the time in the field is to have one person try to be at the top of his game with whatever the front end or the developer piece is and another person to try to be at the top of his game in terms of, of the back end. And nowadays with, with the cloud as well, you you have a lot of integrations that can go in it. That's another big piece for the DBAs to sink their teeth into, right? Because a, a data warehouse doesn't sit on its own, right? It's It has to have... It interfaces with an ecosystem of other products, right? The, the ETL, the actual data sources, uh, whoever consumes it. So it could be there's an analytical layer. There could be there's the visualization tools, right? So there's a lot of other pieces where that role can provide value as well. Right. And and so this brings me to the other thing. And just before we get there, um, the term that folks, the term that Werner and I use is the in the Microsoft world is the data platform consultant, where we, we kind of, and we have an episode uh, dedicated to this. And we touch on it later in our automation episode. Google, I've been doing a lot with Google lately, and their, their title is the data engineer. Notice that, uh, you know, database is not in either, either of those titles. It's data. <laughs> You know, I think that the BA skills are incredibly valuable, but they translate into more understanding the data. You know, early in my career, I was not interested in knowing the data. I was on to tuning the next thing or building the next big server. It was the hardware that really interested me, but that that's gone and gone or going away. So anyway, the so moving on, the other thing that I really want to touch on is in the case of BigQuery, that is the closest thing to serverless data that, that I have seen in the field. I know Amazon has something, although I'm not well-versed in Amazon. I spend most of my time in Google and Azure. What do, It doesn't seem to me that Microsoft has a serverless pl- data play, do they? So the the closest thing, and we're going a bit of, away from Azure SQL DW, but the closest thing that Microsoft has right now to a serverless data offering is USQL with the Azure Data Lake Analytics, right? USQL, you pay by the job. So it's kind of like that, where you don't... Azure SQL DW, like you said, it is not serverless. You definitely have to deploy your data warehouse. And while it's running, you're going to be charged for the compute. It does have the advantage that you can pause. But if you're truly looking for, I don't want to have anything running permanently in any way, not even for a couple of hours, nothing. I just want to pay for consumption. Then Azure Data Lake is the solution right now. Uh, It comes with this all 
you know, this is a total different episode we can make about the drawbacks but, of these yeah. of these solutions, right? And, and to your point, Amazon's is called Athena. That's what you were probably thinking about. Yes, yes, thank you. And you know what? I'm you're, thanks for uh, bringing uh, bringing us back to uh, SQL DW. I am throwing down an asterisk. We will we will discuss that topic, and it will give it a, a whole episode. So coming back to Azure SQL DW, what about compliance concerns? So, so there's a couple of uh, good, really good features there on Azure SQL DW, and it's kind of interesting because for a long time, data warehousing has, wasn't seen as, uh, you know, having these types of super, super strict controls or regulations as opposed to actually operational systems, right? But nowadays, I mean, security is just everywhere and compliance is everywhere. So a couple of interesting good uh, features of Azure DW is... One, it's encrypted addressed, so at least that checkbox, you can just, you know, not worry about it. And if it's required for your compliance standards, it's already encrypted addressed by Microsoft for you, so that's good. And second, it also provides auditing capabilities, so you can enable auditing very easily, and then you will get a record on storage of all the operations done against Azure SQL DW. And a nice uh, little bonus there as well is that Microsoft has created a Power BI template, so you can consume those auditing logs on Power BI. Yeah, so you can just load up the flat file into a Power BI template, and it'll just you know come up with a pre-made dashboard where you can slice and dice by the different operations of your auditing logs. So that's that's pretty neat as well. And finally, nowadays there's a lot of geographic related uh, regulations, right? Yeah, da- uh, data sovereignty before. was 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 my next question. Yeah, exactly. So for those for those concerns is the only real, you pick a region where you start, right? And then the only real way that it is going to move is through the GEOR backup. So every 24 hours, Microsoft is going to move the snapshot of the data warehouse into a paired data center. So you don't pick, you don't have a choice about which data center it goes to, but they never cross international boundaries, right? So in Canada, you would be moving your data warehouse snapshot between central and east, Canada central and Canada east, back and forth. In the U.S., it depends on where you are. I mean, if you're in east U.S., then I'm not sure if it would use central U.S. or east U.S. one or two, but you, you get the drift, right? If you're in Germany, it'll use the two in Germany and so on. So that's that's pretty good. I mean, because it's pretty safe in terms of you're not going to be, if you don't cross international boundaries, it's unlikely. I've never seen a regulation that is so strict that it forces you to be in like the same state or the same province, right? At right, least I right. haven't seen yet. No. It, it, so I, I'm wondering, so that's that's good. The other, the other question that kind of, and maybe it's a pipe dream, but are there any features if I have my data in, in one of the Canadian data centers and it's not allowed to leave Canada. Are there any features that let's say my developers are building something in the US, one of the US regions, US East, let's say, if they query, like you can query any of the services, if they start pulling the data over, are there any warnings? Are there, is there anything in place to say, hold on, this data is you know marked as can't leave? The country Does it, does that that's, exist? Uh, that, that's pretty cool that would be a pretty cool thing to do unfortunately right now you if you had that requirement you would definitely need to put that particular data in a separate data warehouse okay right so if you had a let's say you have an enterprise data warehouse and 
10% of the tables are okay to be queried by everybody. And then 90% are dedicated to a particular region or whatever the percentage distribution is. You would need to split them into separate data warehouses because the way that that would have to be implemented is through A, either security authentication or B, through a firewall, right? And depending on how strict your regulation is, even given access to the other people, like let's say the other territory, even though they might not have access at the table level, might still put you in, in trouble, right? So, because there's two ways to secure them out, right? We can just make logins and put everything, everybody in a group that says this is the US group and the US group has permissions to log into the data warehouse, but doesn't have permissions to that those particular tables, right? But in that sense, we are allowing a connection that is going to cross international boundaries, right? And or you could do completely way super secure or really conservative in terms of compliance, and it would be to just put an actual firewall rule that says any IP range that is not from my known Canada data center is simply not allowed to connect, right? Right. So okay. that one, that one is even more strict in terms of what is allowed to do. So it would definitely, re- you know, depends on your how hard you have to go on this compliance. Okay. What are some common architectures for Azure SQL DW? So, so there's a couple of of common things that people are doing right now. First is is you know you just load most of your data into Azure Blobs. So this is the classic you know, kind of like just copy from on-prem type of of architecture. And it's just to use blob storage or Azure Data Lake as a staging environment for your data. And then from there, you can use Polybase, load into Azure Data Warehouse, and then use Azure Data Warehouse as a, a the repository to run the reports against, right? You run reports in the morning, let's say, and then people consume them during the day. That is, you know, a classic data warehousing architecture on-prem that still works really well with Azure SQL Data Warehouse. Now, being in the cloud enables you to do uh, some other interesting architectures. For example, you could do something like you load data through event hubs. Then if you need to consume that data through real-time dashboards, you could go straight from the event hub into a dashboard. At the same time, event hub could use a sync for blob storage so as the events get consumed they go one way they go through the real-time dashboards the other way they go out to blob storage and then from blob storage they get picked up by data warehouse right so that one that one's an architecture that's really useful for real-time data consumption and then the data warehousing for you know keeping it for forever pretty much right another popular architecture nowadays is to use the data warehouse kind of in a hub and spoke type of architecture where the data warehouse is seen as a kind of a publisher right because azure sql the uh, database also supports columnar storage and it's it gets to a pretty big size nowadays i think azure sql db can go one terabyte to, to up to four terabytes of size right now and with columnar storage you know let's assume a 25 percent decrease in compression then it probably means you can get raw maybe like about 10 terabytes of of data on azure sql db not dw right and still get really good performance so you could use something like DW is your enterprise data warehouse, and then you build data marts off of Azure SQL DB, right? And then you can allow people, for example, for our previous example, you could allow people in the US to have access to their US data mart, right? Because Azure SQL DB can have its own set of, of security rules 
and and its own set of of firewall rules separate right so that's a, another interesting architecture that you can do okay well, what if i'm what if, what about in terms of iot let's say i'm streaming a lot of data into cosmos db and then i want to present it into my reporting structure are there any special or fancy connectors that allow azure sql dw to interface with cosmos db in a high performance so, way so yeah so that's a good question right right now the best way to do that would be probably to use cosmos db's change feed so cosmos db has a change feed that's similar to what people are People might be familiar, for example, with SQL Server change data capture, or, or most most databases, relational databases, they all have some sort of change data capture feature, right? You just you publish the different changes that are happening to your data. Cosmos has this, and it's called the change feed. And you can put this change feed into a flat file, for example, or an SSIS or ADF, for example, could consume it, and then from there, load it into, into Data Warehouse, right? Data Warehouse would not be a pure real-time solution, I would say. You would always have to expect some sort of delay on it. And by real-time, I mean, you know, a lag of two minutes tops. That, to me, is real-time, right? If we're going into the five-minute range, to me, that that's not real-time anymore. So if you're looking for that type of real, real, real-time, it would be more like the architecture that I just mentioned, where you stream to event hubs, event hubs directly to a dashboard, and then in the background, event hubs to DW. Isn't that funny? <laughs> you know, your, your real-time and non-real-time are measured in minutes. When I think back, it would have been hours for me. You know, if it's, oh, yeah, if it's current, you know, current day or current hour, you know, one or two hours. Yeah, that's pretty much real time. But uh, yeah. you know, it, the clouds really just changed. That's just funny. Anyway, before we wrap up, I understand there were some announcements uh, recently about Azure SQL DW. What, walk us through that. Yeah, pretty, pretty exciting stuff. And just goes to show like the amount of investment that Microsoft is putting into it. They have, there's a new tier for Azure SQL DW that is now in preview and it's called a compute instance type of tier. So let's say the current uh, data warehouse that is in uh, general availability right now, and you can go and use it right now, is now called the elasticity tier. And there's a new compute tier. So the difference between these two is that the compute tier has a lot more cores and beefier hardware. And not only that, it also has a local storage and VME SSDs and caches that get loaded as as you use the data warehouse, right? So it's really for the clients that pretty much went all the way in the previous architecture of Azure SQL Data Warehouse, and they still wanted more, right? So I assume that if Microsoft invested all this money into creating this even bigger architecture and deploying it in a bunch of different regions around the world, it's because they probably had quite a bit of demand from the market that even hit the limits of their previous Azure SQL Data Warehouse published limits. So for example, in the in the elasticity tier, the one that we have GA today, there's a limit of 250 terabytes loaded. Uncompressed, that will be around 1 to 1.2 petabytes. This new offering now, it's it's bottomless. You it, Because of the way it's been architected, there is no limit anymore to the size of the data warehouse. Okay, so it could it could grow pretty much endlessly to you know whatever I don't know ten petabytes, twenty petabytes if you needed to, and it, as long as it's structured data, it, data warehouse could still be a really good fit for such a massive data set, and because it's built with these multi-tiered storage, really fast storage devices, then 
it's not the type of data warehouse that you want to pause all the time. It is really meant for continuous use because those NVMe SSDs and those caches over time are going to be really just full with warm and hot data that's going to give you a really big performance boost, right? So it's not something that you want to, you know, flush the cache and reload it all the time like the other tier where the big boost is to, you know, let's do some savings by pausing, resize, pause and resize kind of thing, right? Uh, This tier is meant for continuous high performance use. Last I read, and just to give an idea of how much, uh, you know, really compute power you can get out of it, the DW max size, DW, by the way, when people ask, is is basically how we provision the performance. The max size right now, when you pick it, it's about 4,000 cores distributed amongst the multiple nodes that you would get out of the system, right? So that's wow. that's a lot of compute power. Yep. Yeah, it sure is. I can't even think of a use. Well, yeah, <laughs> I can't think of a use case for that, but wow. They're all, yeah, who knows? I mean, I, I'm, I always say if they built it, there must have been some demand for it, right? Otherwise, I don't think any of these big companies, Amazon, Google, or Microsoft, spend all this money in R&D on something that they haven't researched that is going to give them a, you know, big 10-fold, 20-fold uh, ROI. Right. Yeah, good point. Good point. Well, I, you know, I think we've covered this topic and surrounding topics fairly well. I think we will end there, folks. The biggest compliment you can give us is helping someone else to find us. You can do that by telling a friend or by writing a short, honest review on iTunes. That's all we had for today. Thanks and have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.